guys. Welcome back to the show. I know, two weeks off, total nightmare. I'm back and today I'm talking to Olivia Rose. Olivia graduated from the London College of Fashion studying photography. She developed a unique style of photography shooting the grime music scene in a way that hadn't been seen before. I was lucky enough to meet her when she shot me for ASOS magazine. I got on so well with her. I think that she's absolutely amazing and so I just couldn't wait to have her on the show. So without further ado... Welcome to Thinking Big with me, Maisie Williams. So first of all, when you were a kid, what was your big, wild dream for your future? Ooh. Do you know, I think I... Oh, God, it's so generic. I'm kind of embarrassed for myself. But I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be... Well, I wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to be a hip-hop dancer. Did you? <laughs> That's different, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I wanted to be a ballerina. And I was, and still to this day, quite proud of the fact that when I was doing ballet, I was moved up, like, several sets. I was with the older girls. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, at some point, at some point, the ballet dropped out. But, yeah, I remember I wanted to be a dancer for a very long time Mm -hmm. or some I always knew I was going to be something creative that much I knew yeah even though I went to to like a school for smarts you know like I always was like you know what that's not going to be me I know I'm going to do something creative so yeah yeah. and the second question which I mean I know but for our wonderful listeners how does that compare to what you're doing now Oh. <laughs> it's very different. You're still creative. Yes. You knew you were going to be creative. And I still dance when no one's watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe less ballet now. Um, do you know, it's funny because everything, I feel like everything I've done in my career, I've sort of fallen into. None of it was actually planned. You know, I wasn't, I never sort of sat there and went, oh, I'm going to be a photographer. I think if anything, I actually did the opposite. I was like, oh, anything but photography. Because my dad was a photographer and I didn't want... To do that. To do that, you know, and be compared to him. And then now being involved in directing, that was also something that I never... I think a lot of people sort of sit down and go, right, I'll be a photographer and then that will lead to being a director. And that was never something I consciously thought. I sort of fell into that. And for that reason, I think I'm well suited to what I do because it's been a really organic process. Yeah. But how does that compare to what I wanted to do? I mean, it's it's a world that I couldn't have imagined so mm-hmm. it's better and not as good all in all in the same way yeah so. yeah and you say that you never you've never like sought after anything that you've achieved it's been something that's happened really organically yeah looking to the future is there anything that you have like a big dream a big bucket list tick that you want to get that you want to do with your career creativity wise or completely different even yeah well, um, two then. If okay. It's completely different. Um, completely different. I want a baby. I'm getting so broody. <laughs> it's my birthday on Christmas Eve and I'll be 33 and I'm just like, I want a baby. Mm-hmm. So any listeners who... Uh, <laughs> send in your CVs. Yeah. Maybe you can go through them and find and me a suitable boyfriend. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, this year, when I did start directing, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a feature and I'm going to win an Oscar. Wow. So, how about wow. that? Just throw it out there into yes. the ever, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've got a taste of an egot. I just want an egot now. <laughs> I just want an I've egot. Got the taste of it. I like, love that. I was nominated for an Emmy a while ago. Yeah. And then I was like, I can do it. I can get an egot. Well, but do you know what I, I mean? Don't know it's if I it's really like, can. 
there comes a point when it's like, why not dream for that? Yeah. And then the more you you put things out into the universe, the more they come back to you, you know, and everyone, you know, like kind of the start of this year, everyone was like, lol, you've done one music video and, you know, now you're talking about an Oscar. But I'm like, yeah, but I, you know, let a girl dream. No, totally. I love that. Watch me. Watch me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to do that in three years, you know, because it's, I think It's not about that. Exactly. And it's kind of the easiest way to set yourself up for a fail. But yeah, yeah, in the future, I would just like to be recognized for for this I think more than anything else I've ever done with my career I felt like when I started directing it pulled together everything all of my skills all of the kind of best parts of photography with everything that I felt was missing from photography and I feel like I've come home and it's maybe the first thing that I've ever been able to stand next to and say do you know what even though I'm a baby director at the moment I'm good at this right you love it so I'm confident to kind of go forward with that in my head which I don't think I've ever had before which is nice it's a nice feeling Mm -hmm. you felt really secure and comfortable there yeah I like that but also inversely full of imposter syndrome completely terrified Mm -hmm. I'm still sick when I I literally leave a shoot and the adrenaline makes me sick I did like literally I came off of off a music video the other day was meant to be going to see a best friend of mine so I was in South London I went to West to try and see my friend couldn't make it there because I started to feel ill. My house is east. I'm like, I can't go home. <laughs> so I overshot, ended up at my mum's house, who wasn't expecting me. She opened the door. Oh, babe, how was your shoot? And I puked on her doorstep. Oh, my god! And she was like, oh, <laughs> come well, on well, in. You know, look after me. So, you know, at the same time, it's, like, very overwhelming. And I think sometimes that's the thing that people, when they watch, especially, I mean, I know we all say it, but it's that Instagram thing. And all year I've had people saying to me, you're killing it. It's so sick. Your life is so great. And, you know, like the, the other side of that is me screaming into a pillow, you know, like, right. and, and that is the truth. And you must understand, you know, you put so much of yourself into your work mm. that it's hard. It's hard, but rewarding at the same time. Yeah, so. totally, totally. Um, I want to talk about blue lights and also just what you were saying about putting so much of yourself into what you're doing, but I'll get there. Okay. Um, you are one of very few female photographers that I've worked with. Um, how? What are the like, direct gender inequalities that you face day to day as a photographer in, in your world? Um... Do you know, I think I've, I've actually been quite lucky with my photography career mm-hmm. in that in terms of my sort of ability to move through the industry and work as a female, I think it's actually often worked to my benefit. Nice. But I do think, you know, there's, there's this thing that people sometimes say, which is, why does it matter? Why does it matter if it's a man or a woman or a you know, any other deviation. And it's because everyone comes from a different set of cultural references, a different set of gendered references, a different, Mm. literally a different way of seeing. And I think the way a woman looks at something from another woman to a man to a, you know, whatever it is, you know, I I photograph people, so that's kind of my easiest way to explain it. But yeah. I think you're looking at something in a different way and that in itself creates a new image. 
And I think that's what's been so interesting with my photography career is that I've been able to be a woman in mm-hmm. it and to interact with the people that I'm shooting in a way that maybe someone else might not make them feel so comfortable because, I don't know, if you're showing skin as a woman and you don't want to be sexualized on that day and I'm the one there being like auntie or mom, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a different definitely experience for somebody. Yeah. But then saying that, in it, it was funny because this year, directing, when I was in the States, I had the first of my career, like, proper misogyny moment right where I had a massive crew of men almost everyone on set was a man which I'm sure you've experienced yeah. just, you know <laughs> crews are so male heavy mm-hmm. and lads as well you know not just men but lads yeah you know riggers and grips and gaffers yeah and, yeah <laughs> um and I had a first AD who was so we'd got on like a house on fire and then we got to halfway through the first of two night shoots and it's like five in the morning and everyone's grumpy and, you know, everyone had just eaten and is in that weird lull before you, you know, you pick up shooting again. And he just stopped listening to me, would only take instruction from my male director of photography and ended up saying something to me about, you know, we better get what Olivia wants done lest she gets her panties in a twist. <gasps> And I was like so outraged. It's such a small and seemingly insignificant thing. But in, a, in front of all of these men, he's it telling mean- me not to get my panties in a twist. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was pretty horrible. And I, I actually spoke to him at the end of that because more than anything, I was like upset. This was my friend that I'd made. Yeah. And I said, the first thing I said to him was, it's 2018. Like, look around you on set see what I'm dealing with, take, just take a moment to understand that I'm trying to be the boss here and you're all boys mm-hmm. and what you've done is just undermine me and upset me more than anything. And he was really embarrassed. He hadn't realised the kind of implications of, of saying something flippantly like that which I think people sometimes don't, you know? Yeah, I don't think it, it, it's not like just men hating women and no. hating their power. It's not that. It's just ingrained upon society exactly. that people don't even realise how much weight these little comments hold and how you're still now. That was like the main thing for, in your career. Yeah. And he'd be horrified, you know, but it's, it doesn't mean that it's right. No, totally. And I think the interesting thing is that you've got to give people their moment of ignorance right and I think across many topics you know people don't unlearn something until they've been given the opportunity to do so yeah and so if you can and it's not always possible to hold your temper and and I don't think when somebody's upset you that you should have to but if you can hold your temper and speak to them rationally about it then often you can end up changing the narrative which is what happened on that shoot and the next day he texted me before we'd even arrived on set and he said I'm going to bring better energy today and he did wow and it was you know I could just see that he was thinking slightly more about what he was saying which is necessary yeah and it might make his job a little bit harder but that's okay yeah I feel like I'm constantly having to if I ever disagree with a man on set I feel like I have to word it in a certain way that no one can turn around to me and say like ooh exactly you know? or ask you if you're on your period or right. like some some really misogynistic comment exactly like I feel like I have to do that day to day so yeah. 
And we, I think we end up learning, especially as women, you know, you learn. And I wonder if that's, that's why I kind of was able to not fly off the handle, like mm. perhaps a male director would have done. Right. And just had it out right then. Because that was not going to go down well because the stereotype of woman. And, and, and he made me cry. I walked away and I burst into tears. Mm. And that's not me being weak. That was my anger and frustration leaking out of my eyeballs, you know. <laughs> but to him, that would have looked or it would have probably compounded an ignorant stereotype that right. he was putting on me already. So it was important for me that he not see me yeah. cry. But that annoys me in itself because I don't feel weak for crying. I feel braver than other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Men should cry more. Yeah. On set. We yeah. should make men cry on set. And be like, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the next project. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to see. I bet it's going to look beautiful. Literally, boys balling. It's a good name. Hashtag boys balling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that will catch up. Um, so you spoke about how everything that you've come across within your career has been very organic. Lots of people leave university with this big dream of being a photographer. What did you do when you left university? What were your next steps? How did you move forward? Um, I had a second job for like eight or nine years. Being a photographer, I think nowadays with digital, it's maybe, I say that like I've come from like, the 50s when I when I was shooting at university digital was like the big thing and I think actually I was always completely rejecting that and Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be a film photographer photographer and as an analog only person I'm really staunch on that and I think that I hadn't maybe factored in the implication of the cost of being an analog photographer so for me I spent a good eight years working somewhere else. I was a freelance picture editor, so I worked at every magazine and newspaper you can think of doing all sorts of shifts from the night shift to the day shift to the morning shift, you know, whenever I could fit some work in so that I could pay to shoot photography. And for a good sort of four or five years after I left university, nothing ever got published, nothing ever went beyond a filing cabinet. You know, I, I would go away and do these kind of projects I was giving myself self-directed projects I'd go to Kingston and photograph some gang members and Mm -hmm. then I'd come back and put it all in a filing cabinet and there was a point at which I was like this is you know I need to show these pictures to someone but you know it's it's really hard that's the truth is it's really hard to kind of make that next step into being published and getting people to sort of respect you for what you're shooting and I guess for me, it was, you know, a, a lot of this industry is about who you know, not what you know. And I was lucky enough that I'd been to university with, I went to Central St. Martins and then London College of Fashion. And I'd been with um, a really good friends with a guy who was then, became the fashion editor of ID magazine and went nice. on to work at British Vogue. Mm-hmm. And he kind of brought me through to ID. And that was really where I started publishing my work, which is, you know, I kind of skipped a few steps even even doing that. Um, but I think, you know, like it, it's hard because people ask me a lot sort of what advice I would give to a young photographer now. And I think the thing that I never realised was on my side was the very fact that I was willing to put my money from my other job into my photography, whether or not anyone was looking at it, that showed, 
even to myself, my own dedication to what I was doing. Yeah. And I do believe that if you have that level of passion for something at some point, somebody picks up on that and it takes you forward. It doesn't, you don't know what way you're going to go. And sometimes you just have to let things happen. But I think the most important thing you can do is take yourself seriously. Right. Spend money on yourself, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. That is really taking yourself seriously. Ten years later, I say, I tell you, it's uh-huh. nice. It was nice when it, I finally had a year where I was like, oh, hold on a second, I've actually paid for my life with just my photography. That was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> not, having, not having two jobs and being awake at all hours of the day. Yeah. But no, it's hard. It's hard industry to break through. Most, well, a lot of your career has revolved around the underground music scene. Um, you famously captured grime in a way that people hadn't really seen before. How much of what you do when you're taking photos is about finessing like the perfect photograph and how much of it is about the mood that you're capturing? Ooh, probably 99% about the mood and 1% about finessing a good photograph. Nice. I'm, I'm not a technical photographer. I only really know one way to shoot and that's the easiest way to shoot in order for me to interact with the people that I'm photographing. Mm -hmm. And I think I always say to people before I'm a photographer or anything else, I am a sociologist. I love people. I love interacting with people. That's always been the joy of my job. And I think always why I started to, I guess I I started to be pigeonholed by magazines like ID who would give me like difficult talent as well. And it wasn't just talent, which is its own specific set of, what's the word? You've got to have a specific like social set of social skills. Right. And I think I was lucky because growing up, my my mum was a prop designer and my dad was a photographer. So I kind of grew up around celebrity. Right, right. So for me, I always look at everyone. I don't care who anyone is. They're just a human being and a person. Nice. And I think that that allows you to come at a shoot on a level And especially with the musicians, I think that they saw that although I wasn't necessarily the biggest grime fan in the world or really hardly knew anything about the music when I first delved into that experience of the book, they could see I was coming from an authentic, creative place. Right. And I think always that's the thing that brings people together on a shoot. If you're shooting talent or someone who's, you know, an actor or a musician, they are invested creatively in the same way that you are and yeah. I think you share that you understand that in each other mm-hmm. and that you're bringing it out in different ways you're you're going different ways about the same thing yeah which I've always found like a really interesting kind of symbiosis that happens in shooting like that's so fascinating to hear that actually like grime came to you you didn't go to grime yeah and but is that not completely terrifying that you feel like you get these such beautiful photos where you're just really truly connecting with who you're talking to, who you're photographing. But like how you ever in situations where you're like, I don't feel like I know enough to be here. Or have you just never had that fear? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think specifically with the Grime book, that it's a really good example of something that I always say that when when the book came out, it, I felt like I'd had a baby and then I felt like I had postnatal depression. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't be anywhere near it. I didn't want to stand next to it. I wasn't like ashamed of having done it. I loved it and I saw how much like hard work and effort went into it. But 
I wasn't sure anymore after the process of doing the book whether or not I should have done it. Right. Which was really weird, a really strange sort of conclusion to come to. And I think that I consolidate that with myself now in that it is still important for an outside perspective on something. Yeah. And I don't think that I could have taken the same pictures that I did were I kind of a diehard grime fan. Totally. Because I would have come at it from like a hierarchy. You know, there were situations where, where I was with MCs who would like challenge me, like, who are you? And, and, you know, do you know anything about this? And luckily, I'm like a sponge. If you put me around somebody who's talking about things, I sort of just absorb the knowledge. Yeah, and you can just say it back to someone. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I've been with Hattie while she's... Hattie Collins, who wrote the book. I've yeah. been with Hattie while she'd been interviewing everyone. And that was kind of like the most amazing, beautiful journey that I didn't realise I was going to go on with right. the book, was that while I'm photographing people, I'm being allowed into their history, their stories, their you know, direct oral accounts of, of what this scene was about and what it was made of. So although going into the project, I didn't know anything, I've come out the other end with knowledge that I never thought I'd have. Right. Where somebody says something and suddenly there's me interjecting with, and I'm like, <laughs> I, how did I know this about this particular <laughs> MC, you know, which is, you know, kind of, at some point I was like, okay, Actually, do you know, it was a friend of mine who was involved in the grime scene said to me once, he said, Liv, you've got to stop this, this like weirdness with the book. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, do you know enough MCs that if somebody came to you with money in a venue, you could book them for a party? And I was like, mm, yeah. And he was like, well, then you're fine. He was like, that's it. That's all you ever needed to know. And I was like, okay. I say that grime is for life and not just for Christmas. Yeah. You can't just go in and, and out again. I've got friends for life now. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's kind of like a nice full circle thing. Yeah, that's dope. Um, so going on to Blue Lights, it was a song that really propelled George's career. Yeah. For you, how important is it working with people who are like more successful than you so you can propel your career and then also people who are in like looking to like work with someone who can pull them up to the next level like how do you try and consciously balance that um I don't think I don't know I was gonna say I don't think it's so much a conscious thing but I suppose in some ways it is um George is a good example of somebody who I photographed her I think it was her first ever set of like press photos. Mm -hmm. So I met her, you know, it was this really amazing kind of adorable experience. This girl turns up with a suitcase of her own clothes yeah. and a makeup artist. And that was it. No manager, no PR, no yeah. handler, no car. Yeah. Turns up off the tube in a tracksuit. Yeah. Really talented, like, you know, really lovely, wonderful person. And we hit it off and, and made friends. And I think then, you know, you don't realize what you're doing, but each other are, you know, you're pulling each other through because of your friendship and because you're both developing your art and your skills at the same time, I right. suppose. Um, then there's, you know, other people that I'm aware. I think maybe like the Black and Future video that I did yeah. over the summer, you know, that was one where I was aware that I'd photographed Future like four years before and hadn't really known 
you know, the kind of the UK hadn't really caught on to Future yet at that time. And then going back into that situation where he's now like one of the highest grossing rappers in the US. Yeah. Who definitely didn't remember who I was. Oh. And, you know, like it was kind of this weird situation where the tables turned and I then realised how lucky I was to be in that situation. Right. But then, you know, like a lot of what I do is about, you know bringing people through with me. That's what I want to do. I know a lot of talented people. I think I've, you know, my connection to music is more real than just people once said to me, do I want to shoot musicians? You know, I'm a, you know, they say, if you can't do teach, yeah. I say, if you can't do shoot, because <laughs> secretly I just always wanted to be a singer, you know, like right. that was, that was my thing. And I went to these open mic nights and one of my best friends 10 years ago started, um, a night called Wired and she was one of the first people to put Ed Sheeran on and right. you know all of these people have kind of come through and I've watched these musicians grow and a lot of my friends are musicians and some of them are still you know 10 years younger than me you know kids who I've met with talent who that's always fascinated me people with talent I don't care if you're 20 years younger than me mm -hmm. 20 years older than me you know just you you connect on that level and I think one of my sort of main motivations now that I've got a bit more following and have a bit more power to kind of decide on my own projects and find funding and you know the things that are really hard for people when they're starting out and nobody knows who they are they don't have kind of a, a portfolio to hold them up that's what I'm interested in doing now is kind of finding ways to put funding with people who don't necessarily have access to it. Yeah. So I can make super shit hot music videos for people who need don't them. have the money to do it mm -hmm. and need them, you know? Yeah. Because it's all well and good, you know, future having a, a big giant budget for music videos, but it would be amazing if we could you know, any brands listening, you know, pair, <laughs> pair some big budgets with people who are completely unknown, but super talented. Yeah. It's more exciting, I think, for, for the listener as well. Yeah. There's definitely an idea in there. Somebody's going to steal it now and I'm going to be very angry. <laughs> Do you prefer film or stills? I mean, I, can't, I kind of can't really say film, can I? Because I've been shooting stills for 10 years. But I think but you film, can. Yeah, yeah. prefer moving image. It's such sacrilege. I can't believe I've actually just said that out loud. It's the first <laughs> time anyone's actually asked me the question. But, but yeah, I mean, oh, I don't know. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, my heart will always be with photography. And I think one of the lovely things is that <clears throat> a lot of the references that I pull through for moving image are still photographs. And I think in the blue lights video, you can see that yeah, probably yeah. better than anything else I've made. It's photographs that move, but the kind of added dimension of characterization of the ability to make something move to music or to add words and narrative and that kind of, you know, extra dimension to something yeah. is it was kind of like opening this gift, this like Christmas present, right. you know, and in there it's like sparkles and glitter and like all of these amazing things just jumped out of a box. And I'm yeah. like, you know, it's almost like I'm still playing with it. Yeah, you know? there's so many other tools now exactly. that you can work with and so many, or like weapons almost. Yes, like. exactly. And it's like intimidating, but empowering at the same time because I've got, you know, and, and it's kind of also like building up new teams with stills. I spent 10 years 
putting together teams that I know I like to work with, that I don't have to micromanage, that if I say, you know, we want X, Y, or Z person, you know, looking no makeup fresh, I don't then have to go and check what they're doing because right. I know that everything's in hand. Mm-hmm. And that's what's a really nice process now is putting teams together for moving image where finally I don't have to worry about the technical element of the camera. That was the bit that I hated with photography. Just, just not that person. Yeah. Don't care. Just don't care. And I never will care. And so pairing me with the director of photography is like magic. Mm -hmm. That's like, oh my God, what do you mean? Somebody who holds the camera. That's like excellent. So, so yeah. And, and also gives me the ability to think of things as a whole and to not actually have my head in a camera while I'm shooting. Right. Which you can is see amazing. The bigger picture. Yeah. Which I never have, you know. If, if you physically imagine that on all of my shoots, my head is in a camera. Yeah. Now I can look at what's going on. And it's such a tiny, it's literally the difference between your chin being down and your chin being up. But that can change your perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. And we should remember that sometimes when we're like walking down the street, if you feel rubbish. Like, look up, just look in a different way or look down or... Mm-hmm. And maybe you're going to just find a bit of inspiration or just change your perspective for a second. Moving beautifully on to... <laughs> <laughs> You've been very vocal about your mental health struggles yeah. and those days when you are feeling a little off. Yeah. How... We've chatted a, l- a little bit in private about how when you're so, so busy, like, sometimes your brain doesn't Stop care. working, yeah. <laughs> Brain says no. Yeah, totally. Like, how difficult is that? Because you, you, it's very difficult to sort of reschedule anything that you've got coming yeah. up if there is time when you're going through, like, a dip. Like, how, how do you balance that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's that constant juggle of... You know, funnily enough, I think often when I'm busiest, I feel my most well because I'm on a roll of yeah. something. And I think one of the worst things I've experienced in my career was kind of, I just had this three month, just before we came back to Christmas. Yeah. It was a three month for many different reasons. Lots of projects fell through all at once. And I stopped being busy. I don't have this other job. I was kind of used to working 24 hours a day. You know, that's kind of how I got through my life. And then I suddenly had this period where I was like, oh my God, will I ever even work again? Yeah. And that sent me under like nothing has ever sent me under it was like I couldn't it was like I couldn't remember who I was anymore I've also just given up smoking I'm three months into giving up cigarettes wow after 14 years of like 20 a day Mm. and I've realized that I've given myself back I counted it out so 20 cigarettes a day is two hours of anxiety that I now have to deal with in a different way. Right. That's the bit they don't tell you when you quit smoking. They're like, oh, your legs will twitch and you won't be able to sleep. And that's true, the first two weeks, you know. But that physical addiction, leaving your body, is something that you can manage because your legs are twitching because of the chemicals leaving your body. Mm -hmm. You then get three months down the line and you're like, why am I a crazy person? Mm -hmm. Why can't I deal with anything? Right. Why is somebody telling me that I can't triple my budget because my idea was insane? Making me cry and howl hysterically all through the night. And it's putting those two things together, connecting the dots between the fact that I had this like 
Mice. My therapist says to me that it's it's a nipple that you suck on when you're smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. I was like, she was like, don't you think you're a bit old for the nipple now? And I was like, yes, maybe at 33 I am a bit old for the nipple actually. But it is, it's, it's like a weaning yourself off for comfort thing. Yeah. I'm trying to, I mean, nothing else has made me feel like more of an adult than this must be the first time I've ever found like real willpower. And I mean that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm awful. I, like, literally am, like, the world's most repeating pattern. Yeah. I swear, if you looked at my life in, like, a graphic, it would be, you know, those spiral things that you have as kids. You put the pen <laughs> yeah, in and you yeah, spin yeah. the thing around. <laughs> that would be my life. So I'm trying to kind of break that now. And that, for me, was, like, a massive breakthrough was this kind of, if I can stop smoking, then I can do anything. Mm-hmm. And now, having readjusted, you know, coinciding the stopping smoking with a, with a kind of lull in work, I just sort of came out the other side of it recently when I started working again and and remembered that when I'm busy, that is when I feel my most well. And so I think often that it doesn't necessarily coincide that I've got work and I don't feel well, although sometimes it does. And it's kind of, it's it's being able to even draw on your creativity when you're depressed is so hard. For me, for as an actor, so much of what we do is just drawing upon memories and emotions. And I use emotional memory a lot where I think of a time when I felt this emotion that I'm trying to portray and then you just get back to that pl- place. Yeah. And if you are going through a really rough time and a lot of what you're having to do on set is really rough and really emotional, sometimes it's really hard to get the help that you probably should be getting because you know that it's going to jeopardise what you're doing f- Create. Mm, interesting. Like, do you ever feel like there's times when you're like, I can't feel good right now because whatever I'm feeling is really working for what I'm doing? Yes. Yeah, I yeah. really relate to that. Mm. But I've never thought about it in that way. And it's really interesting to, to hear it put that way. You must find it, it must be quite triggering. Totally, yeah. Because that's essentially what you're doing, isn't it? It's like self-enforced <laughs> triggering to yeah. be able... To, to do your job. Yeah. That's why, you know, the creative industries are a weird place. And that's why I think it's it's always like anyone who's not necessarily involved and wants to look at the things that we do and say, oh, my God, they have the best lives ever. You know, like, it's like, say that with a pinch of salt. I think we could both recognize that we have amazing days and get to experience, like, unbelievable things. Yeah. But you've got to remember that that is balanced with, like, Pain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and self-enforced triggering, yeah. your, you know. And yeah. similarly, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, sometimes a project is coming out of a, of a dark place. Yeah. And if you pull yourself out of it, what will be left? It's another thing that my therapist says all the time. She says to me, you're worried that if you get better, and I use inverted commas when I say that because, you know, it, we there's just no are. such thing. Right. That you won't be creative anymore. So interesting. Isn't it? That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, especially when I was younger, I think when I was kind of learning how to feel, you know, you're like kind of 14 and up years, which is really the hardest time for a woman, I think. (laughs) Um, I was, it it almost felt like the thing about me that was interesting was that I was sad. Right. And so there's a part of me that I think is always trying to grow up from that but is maybe a bit afraid to because yeah. what if I'm not interesting anymore? Yeah, it feel, you feel like it, that's what makes you you. Exactly. 
And if you don't have that, then like, what, where will you? Who Why? Will I do? Well, it's the same as smoking, you know. But if I don't have that, then then actually, who am I? Mm-hmm. Because I was proud of that vice. Yeah, it was part of my thing. And then when it's gone. I tell you the answer is I'm exactly the same person I was before I stopped smoking, but I've learned to deal with my anxiety better and I'm not less creative. And if anything, my ideas are getting better. Mm -hmm. And the two things probably aren't related, you know, whether or not my ideas are getting better, but it's important to remember that you can be well and also work. Yeah. Yeah, I remember a friend said to me, he said, like, you don't have to be sad. And just hearing someone say that and almost give you the permission. Yeah. It was like, a, it was so simple, but yeah. it was like a huge moment where I realized I can, I can be me. I can be just a happier version. <laughs> well, you know, and I think it's also really difficult because there's, it's some, sometimes I think it's almost easier to, mm, easy is maybe not the right word, but it's like a different set of things you draw upon to play a sad character, to write a depressing, angry, angsty thing. For me, and and maybe someone who's not like me would find it the other way around, but for me, comedy and humour, which is is a massive part of my life, it's another way that I get on with the people that I'm photographing, that I've always been comfortable with. I consider myself to be quite a funny human. Um, (laughs) Me too. Yeah, that's the scariest thing, you know, the idea of writing comedy or directing something funny is almost scarier to me because my default position with my art is to come from a dark place. Right. And so actually there's a part of me that's like, maybe that would be really cathartic for you is to work on something really happy and see if you can even do that. A real feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? I can't. No. (laughs) Non-smoking, comedy writing. No, who am I? I'm still the 14-year-old that listened to Radiohead to learn how to feel. So, no, you know, you've got to let yourself grow. That's the other thing. And somebody said to me once, you know, when when somebody says to you, you've changed, you should go, yeah, I have. And be proud of it. Yeah. Because if you haven't, it's like the old Shakespeare thing, the characters in Shakespeare that don't change, that, that the character doesn't, grow and develop through the play they're always the bad characters Mm -hmm. and I remembered that from school always you know the people who change and grow they're the good ones even if you go through bad times or evil times or yeah you're adapting and learning exactly and that means that you're listening to what's happening around you you know Mm. if you're not and if you're closed off to that that's when you know and that's when there is no growth and that's when you become just a staid ignorant person Mm mm-hmm I think. I mean, we've sort of touched on the answer, but what are you most proud of from your career? Mm. Or is it something different? What am I most proud of? I think, honestly, I'm most proud of, of kind of the, the connections I've built. I've got a lot of friends who I would n- never otherwise have come into contact with or met who are kind of wildly inspiring and in many different ways across many different fields. And I think if there's one thing that I really 
that I really feel like I can stand next to and point at and say, this is what I've done well. It's that. It's kind of make connections with the people yeah. that I've met through my work. I mean, it's why we're here right now. Exactly. We got on so well. Exactly. Mm. And it's, you know, the, the same with... It, it kind of builds a, a an amazing thing as well as somebody who's a, who's a kind of documenter, a visual archivist of people. yeah. It makes my job easier if I can develop a relationship with somebody because then there's a trust there and in trust you get your best pictures or your best film or your best, you know, work out of somebody. Yeah. And then it works both ways. The person that you're with can tell you no because I think that people forget that, that for you guys on the other side of a camera, it's impolite to be rude you know, and then you you must feel like you can be lumped really quickly with diva or oh, yeah. different kinds of ways that you can be on set just because you're not really feeling getting your ass out for that picture. <laughs> or do you know what I mean? You know, something that's completely well within your rights. Mm-hmm. And then I think it makes it easier for the person I'm photographing to say, do you know what, Olivia, please, like today is not the day I'm not feeling my arms or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'll respect that. I'm not here to push anyone. Yeah. I'm here to get the best picture that we can get together. And if that means that you want to stand with your back to me and wear a very large hat, then let's do it. Because yeah. that's my challenge is to get the good picture, however you feel most comfortable. So. Wow, yeah. When we were on our shoot together... When we fell in love. When we fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> on that cool winter's day. It's freezing. <laughs> um, I asked you if you were going to Photoshop me. Yeah. And you had a really great answer, which I have remembered this whole time I mean it's probably a line that you say a lot but you said if there's anything on you today that might not be on you in a week yeah then I'll take it away yeah and I love that because I've been the victim of like photoshopping and you know I get I I understand it but it just makes you feel so awful about your true self and the shoot that we did I've never been so happy with something ever mm-hmm. and everyone loved it like it was so, it was just a, a a great shoot and I just think like how do you remain that way surely you must have pressure from people being like oh that doesn't look good you need to make sure that this is more commercial and yeah definitely but I mean I'm I'm just not having it and that is me and I lose work for it and that's the truth you know if you want to be somebody who's of the time commercially viable, well, then you're not going to be a a 100% analog photographer who won't have a digital operator on set. And the reason I do that is not because I have any problem with digital. It is because for me, the way I work, the kind of relationships I want to build with somebody, I cannot risk having a laptop on set that any person could look at as the pictures are streaming through. Mm. And then whilst you are trying to be comfortable in front of my camera, your manager does one minute face towards that laptop and then suddenly you're wondering what is wrong with you. Yeah. That I will, I will shoot 100 pictures, only two of them will be nice. Not because there's anything wrong with the person I'm photographing, but because that's how photography works. Yeah. And so if somebody who doesn't understand the art of it is looking through, I always say to people, it's like, if you're going to look through my digital pictures on set, it's like me coming downstairs naked with no makeup on and saying, am I ready, Maisie, for the party? You'd be like, babe, you've forgotten your clothes and you forgot to brush your hair. And, you know, let me edit first 
And then we can assess, you know, then you can say, I'm not sure about the red dress. I think you'd look better in the green one, you know, then we can tweak. Mm -hmm. But I need to spend some quiet time with my photographs first to pick apart what feels like Maisie or, you know, what pushed Maisie somewhere else. And also like the memory of being on set in that moment, what we were doing, what we were laughing about. Yeah. Exactly, you know. Finding those ones and being like, yeah, this was it. This was when things were really, really vibing. Which is why I think it was nice. It was, it was the the juice box shot. Is that the the one that ended up on the cover? Yeah, it did. Because that, I really loved that it was on the cover because we had a little moment over the juice box, you know, like just out of nowhere, you know, we we shared a little moment (laughs) over a juice box, as you do. (laughs) But, you know, for me, that's always kind of like the, the sort of gag. And I think that, Actually, it it was replicated in Blue Lights in its own way because Georgia and I came up with the idea for that. It was like at the same time, I knew she was writing me. I can't remember, one of us was voice noting and the other one was was typing on WhatsApp. And she'd said, oh my God, I've got this really amazing idea for the Blue Lights video. And I just had this feeling that we had the same idea, which Mm -hmm. we did, which was to base it in Walsall and to, to kind of root it in her life and her upbringing. So the things that that nobody who watches that video would know unless you did is that her dad's in it, her dad's barber's in it, the two boys that the song was written about appear in it. Mm. And I'm not going to sit and, and go through and tell everyone who is who, but you do feel it. Totally. You feel the intimacy and the the authenticity of what I've done, whether or not you're part of that gag. Yeah. And for me, that is always something I try and put into my work, you mm-hmm. know, like our little joke. Yeah. Because everyone else sees it as well, even if they don't understand it. Yeah. And that's why we just love working with you. Hey. <laughs> we should shoot more. We should, totally. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. Thank I've loved hearing me. you chat about your career. And um, yeah, I can't wait to work with you again. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, perfect. Yay. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything you got coming up? Um, oh, Christmas, my yeah. birthday, Christmas yeah. Eve. You're going to do all oh, parties. I've been competing with Jesus for 33 years. He always wins. <laughs> it's, it's quite upsetting. Um, no, this year know, I'll think... text you before I message anyone saying Merry yes. Christmas. <laughs> do you know, people sometimes still get me, get me birthday presents and wrap them in Christmas paper. Oh. You you are struck off my friendship list, like deleted from the phone if that happens. If you dare. It's just lazy. There is still happy birthday paper around. Yeah. But no, I think 2019 is gonna be is gonna be quite an exciting year. Definitely. Because I don't know what's about to happen. And that's but it's the most worked up until thing. this point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just let it be. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Thank uh, you. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to my lovely podcast and a special thanks to Butter and Marmite.